0: If you know what that means. All right, if you have your Bibles, Luke 17 is where we're going to, thank you, where we're going to land this morning. Uh, Before we do, just a couple quick announcements for the next coming weeks. Um, I'm going to back up. Excuse me. I'm glad no one was offensive and made the truck backing up noise, because that would have hurt my feelings. Um, next week, we are not going to be here, right? So next Sunday, if you show up here, you're wrong. You're going to be by yourself. You're going to play basketball, and that might actually be fun, but, but don't come here. Next week, we're going to be at the retreat at Long Mountain, um, so make sure that, uh, can, can you turn me down just a hair in the monitors or something? Sarah? Can you turn me down a little bit in the monitors? I feel like I'm yelling, and I'm not yelling yet. I'm going to get preaching here in a minute, but not yet. So um, in next week, retreat at Long Mountain. That's where we're going to be. If you've never filled out a communication card, please do it this morning and turn it in. Um, That way we can shoot you the address and all the information about that. Um, That's the best way to get that information to you. But next week um, is is huge for a lot of different ways. Uh, One, raise your hand if you're a senior. you're about to graduate. All right. So we're going to recognize you guys next week. Um, Raise your hand if you're going to Milledgeville in the fall. So we're going to recognize you guys next week. So for those that don't know, we're planning our first church in Milledgeville in the fall. And so um, this is kind of our sending Sunday. We're going to send the seniors out. We're going to send Milledgeville out. Um, we're going to have a couple baptisms to, to partake in, and also we're going to be great Baptists and we're going to eat, right? So um, the church is providing hamburgers and hot dogs. If you guys can bring um, like a side or a dessert, and, and don't bring weak dessert, college kids, bring a good dessert. Um, we all like desserts. Don't, don't embarrass yourself with weak desserts. So um, that's going to be next week. So make sure you write that down next week, not here, the retreat at a Long Mountain um, in Cleveland. Um, Other than that, another quick two announcements and then we'll jump into Luke 17. Uh, I've been mentioning it for the last couple weeks. We are starting um, to take applications if you're interested in interning with the branch. Um, The internship will actually start in August uh, but the way that it works is it's a three year program. The first year is just a general internship where you'll be learning a ton but maybe not doing a ton. Um, Year two is an apprenticeship so we'll place you in a couple different areas and keep growing you in in ministry but then let you start doing some work. Um, Year three is you'll be an actual resident. You'll be on staff with us. And then year four, you go. Um, So the prayer is that as we're starting to plant 10 churches in the next 10 years, um, we've got to create a conveyor belt of sending. And so, Um, that's the process of our internship. And so if you're interested in that, please come talk to me, let me know, and and we'll get started there. The last thing, and then we'll dive into the text, is today is a huge day for the life of the church. Um, We have, uh, we're after service, we're going to do the whole like Southern Baptist call into a meeting. I don't think we're going to phrase it that way, but um, we are going to vote in the constitution and then Lord willing, if that passes at 1.30 today, we're going to have our first membership class, um, which is just huge for us. So um, after the service, we'll do a quick uh, business deal. If you're new here, if you don't know what that means, that's fine. Uh, but church members, or you're not members yet, church people, you um, you should be familiar with what we're talking about. And then after that, go grab some lunch and then come back at 1.30 in the children's room and we'll have our first ever membership class, which is exciting. Um, there's just a lot of emotion for me. I'm not an emotional person, but um, getting ready next weekend to send out Milledgeville, um, getting ready to have a church constitution and membership. Um, I, I was just thinking last night when I was putting the final touches, um, there's a moment, where's my wife? There's a moment where Bree and I were in our kitchen and I said, Boo, if something doesn't change in the next next six months, I'll quit. Like we will, I will leave the branch. I'll go get another job. Um, if, if this does not change, if life doesn't change for us in the next six months, um, like we'll, we'll, we'll just put this thing to rest and, and go follow God wherever he's leading us next. So to see how far God has taken that to, like now we're actually going to have membership that we're sending out a church in Milledgeville. Uh, it's just awesome to see how faithful the Lord is in, in that whole process. So. I also want to say, I know I said one more thing, but I'm a pastor, get over it. Um, this week for me and for our family has just been crazy. Um, Bree's mom has been under the weather. Uh, it feels like everyone in our family has been under the weather. It's just been a crazy week. And, and so I think sometimes we all live in our own little bubbles where everything's happy and fine. And um, But this week, the, the mindset that I was in was, man, if, if this week has been this hard for me, how hard has it been for the church, right? I know that we're all walking the seasons of just, uh, I, again, I know we're in church, but may I say, just crap, right? Like this, this life is not in a happy, fun season right now. We're not enjoying life. There's things going on. Um, and that's been our week. And I know statistically that's going to have to be some of our weeks too, so um, I'm just going to stop and pray because I know as, as distracting as my mind is this morning because of all that's happened this week, that I'm probably not alone. Um, so let's just take a moment. Let's just pray and ask that the Lord would clear our minds, clear our hearts, and, and let us see scripture um, because this is a fun scripture to t- teach this morning. So um, if, if we don't pray that, then you're probably going to get mad at me. So uh, let's pray and then we'll dive in. Uh, Father, we, we know one thing, that you love us. Jesus, we can hang our hat on that, no matter what the world throws at us, no matter what week we've had, month we've had, year we've had. Father, we we know that you love us, even if we doubt sometimes and we wonder, and it seems like everyone else is doing better than us, God, we hold fast to the truth that you have a plan for us that you didn't forget about us, that you do love us, that you uh, care for us, that you died on the cross just as much for us as the person sitting to the left or right of us. And so this morning, would we just forget all the world is throwing at us? God, will we hang true or hang fast to the truth that you love us, that you sent your only son to die for us, and that because of that, we can be made right with you. Would that truth be central to our hearts, central to our lives, and, and because of that goodness, because of your grace, would, would everything else just seem trivial and secondary to that one truth, that you love us. So thank you for your word. Thank you for this church. Father, we just pray that we hear from you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Luke 17, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. We've only got four verses this morning, but man, this is a weighty four verses. So y'all ready? All right, let's go. Luke 7, 1 through 4. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. I wasn't joking, church. All right, verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in that day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So, w- with this in mind, I have a confession to make to you this morning. Um, I am, in, in life, I'm uh, what some would call just a man, right, like I am, y- you can't get much more manlier than me, right, like, I hum- someone laugh, that's, that's not a joke, I am like, if, if you look up man in the dictionary, Stop. me, Gabe Dodd, right, like, I hunt, I fish, I can kill things with my bare hands. People fear me when I walk into the room. Um, that's just what happens. But in all confession, if you have a dog over 40 pounds, I am a little girl, okay? I am terrified of dogs. I'm, I'm not lying. I am, there, there's a sign that some people have that say, beware of dogs. Checkmate gin and rummy, I'm out. If that is at your house, I'm not coming. So, so we deliver food on Fridays to um, those in the community that need it. Uh, my biggest fear is not that like someone's going to greet me at the door with a shotgun or that like any of that. My biggest fear is that there's going to be a dog that's going to like attack me right there on the spot. So um, many people wonder why we have a miniature Datsun. This is why I can handle a miniature Datsun. Anything much bigger than that, I I can't handle. And so um, say all that to say that beware means something to me when it comes to dogs, right? That if I see a beware sign, I know beware, you might die. Um, growing up, our, our neighbors next to us had a Doberman and a chow, and we could not ride our bikes down the street to our friend's house without being chased down by these things and nipping at our heels and tires. And, so I'm just scarred, okay? So all you laughing just helped my scar, and thank you for that, church. <laughs> so when we look at this text, verse 3, the first four words, uh, pay attention to yourselves. A better translation of this would be, beware of yourself. So beware is more than a warning. It's more than just that. hey, you might want to watch out. You might want to be careful. Beware is that there's death looming. Beware. And we're not talking about beware of sin, beware of dogs, beware of anything else. Scripture is clear here. Beware of who? Yourself. Beware of yourself, that death might come to you, destruction might come from you, not from the world, not from dogs, not from any secondary thing. Death might enter in through you. Church, beware, protect yourself from yourself. So as we're going through these four verses, this is the caveat that Jesus is teaching. This is the umbrella that all of this is going to fall under, that your greatest enemy is you. Beware of yourself, And so let's pick it up in, in verse one. Th- the greatest thing I can do as a pastor, as a preacher of God's word, is keep pushing your head back down into scripture. So we're gonna read a little bit and talk a little bit, but I wanna keep pressing in. There's gonna be a couple verses that I want you to flip through and underline and see for yourself. So if you don't have a Bible, there's some around here. Please take one, um, take notes. I think there should be communication cards or some kind of index cards around you. Write these scriptures down, meditate on them, read them yourself throughout the Week, verse one, and he said to his disciples. So we have to stop here and just understand who is Jesus teaching to. If, if you have your Bibles or even if you have your smartphone, all this is what red leather, red leather, uh, yellow leather, red yellow leather. Yes, um, all of this is red leather. So who Jesus is teaching? Jesus is addressing who? His disciples. He's talking to the ones that are following him. He's church. He's talking to us. Right, he's talking to the believers that are pursuing Jesus already. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe is the one whom, through whom they come. So, just to juxtapose real quick, and we've seen this trajectory all through Jesus' teaching. There's two crowds that Jesus is constantly addressing: either his disciples, who we see here or the Pharisees, the religious ones, the ones that have everything together, have everything figured out, that the culture looks around and says, these guys are the ones that know it. These guys, for us, it would be the ones, the the patriarchs, the one that have grown up in church, that, that you look at them, I mean, they've got the perfect Bible, they've got the perfect life that you know, like there's no way they sin, there's no way they have struggles like I have struggles. They're just perfect. So what he's doing here, what Jesus is about to teach is do kind of a juxtaposition of, hey, listen, Disciples, here's what you think is righteous. Here's what you think is truth. Here's what you think you should be like. But, but I want to urge you, I want to swing the pendulum over here, and I want you to be like me. And some of this will start to make sense in a second. Temptations are sure to come. The NASB says it a little different way, and I think there will be a word that they use that make makes some sense to us. NASB puts it this way: It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come but woe to him through whom they come. Now raise your hand if you've ever heard the word stumbling block, right? I mean, this is in in just kind of church culture, the word stumbling block comes up a lot. I don't wanna be a stumbling block for this, that that this was a stumbling block for me. So so in the Greek, this phrase stumbling block actually means um, the trap, right? So has anyone ever trapped any kind of animal or like a little sibling, right? Um, okay, that's true. So when you walk into the cage, right? Like there's always a tripwire. There's always something that you step on that will close the trap behind you. So this phrase "stumbling block" is literally that tripwire. It is something that's going to trap you, that's going to keep you contained. So that's what he's talking about when he says, "Stumbling block." Don't be a stumbling block, a trapstick or any item placed in the way that would cause someone to stumble or fall. Now who is he talking to about these stumbling blocks? We see a little later in verse, the end of verse two, um, that he's talking about the little ones to sin. Woe is you that causes these little ones to sin. Now he's not literally talking about little kids, he's talking about little believers, new believers, new disciples. So temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe is the one through whom they come. Stumbling blocks, will happen, but if you are that stumbling block that causes a little one to sin, a new believer to sin, woe is you. The word woe is curses. Curses will come to you if you cause a little one to sin, if you are a stumbling block. Now church, we just have to sit here for a minute in the waitingness of this, He's talking to believers, he's talking to disciples, he's talking to us that if we're stumbling blocks for, uh, if, if we leave temptation for these new believers, woe is us that, that we are cursed. So I just want to spend a few moments just kind of making sure we outline what is a stumbling block. What does this look like? Because it is a wide spectrum. So if you have your Bible, flip over to Matthew 23 for me real quick. Matthew 23, 15. And and this is where some of this will start to make sense when he's talking to the Pharisees versus the disciples. Because the Pharisees, we're about to see, are the kings at stumbling blocks. Even though they are righteous, they're religious, uh, there are a lot of ways what people would consider perfect in that day. What Jesus is about to show us is these guys are actually the king of stumbling blocks. They're the key of causing people to sin, to bring temptation to their life. So Matthew 23 is uh, just a, a chapter of woes. I mean, it's, every paragraph starts off with Jesus giving woes, giving curses to these Pharisees. Matthew twenty three fifteen. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, which means convert, and when he has become a proselyte or convert, you make him twice the son of hell that you are. Whoa, Jesus mincing words here. So, what is what is Jesus getting at? What is this stumbling block that he's teaching of? If we go all the way back into the garden, when the sin first originated with Adam and Eve, this is where the stumbling block starts. How did the serpent convey this message to Adam and Eve? How did sin first enter the world? No, God didn't surely say that. If you do this, you will be like him. If you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be open. you will be like God, to so the root of all sins for us, church, the, the thing that we have to understand is the core of sin, the core of stumbling blocks, is that we think we can be like God. Now, now, no one will actually mention that. No one will verbally say, no, no, in this situation, in this scenario of my life, I think I know better than God. Never heard anyone actually verbalize that, but when you talk through people, talk through sins and issues, the root of almost every single sin is this, that we think we can be God. That we think we know better than God. So these Pharisees had committed all of these sins, all these um, atrocities because they think they knew better than God. That they think if they did the right things, they followed the rules to the T, they even took the rules, the, the law, and they took it up a notch and said, no, no, uh, if this causes me to sin, I'm, I'm going to go all the way over here because I can be like God by myself. Give me some rules, give me a list to follow, and I will do it better than you. What the Pharisees are teaching. So when Jesus is teaching this, what we have to stop to understand is, is we obviously understand stumbling block is just flagrant sin, right? That If I'm a pastor here um, and, and you find out tomorrow that I committed adultery, right? That I had a little honey on the side. and That's just not possible. I have a beard and I'm like 60 pounds overweight. Church, I assure you, no woman will do that. I don't know how my wife does it. That's, that's just the truth of the matter. But the truth of it is, if I have an adulterous relationship, if I commit adultery with another woman, I'm going to ruin a bunch of souls in this room. That, that my pastor let me down. So I would be a stumbling block for you because this great sin that I've committed. And we all understand that and we all can see that, that if we're living this life of righteousness and it turns out that we're actually hypocrites and, and all of us probably have a couple of people in our mind that that's happened to us too. But who Jesus is talking to is comparing the disciples to the Pharisees and their sin is a lot more subtle than that. What they're doing, these stumbling blocks they're creating is Jesus and. Faith and. So so, so here's here's what I mean. Uh, And I'm just going to be real for a second. I hope I don't offend you. But this is just, this is the world we live in. Uh, Pornography is rampant. I don't know if you guys realize this, but it is uh, ruining families. It's ruining men and women across this room, across this country. So here's what I've told some of the guys that I've met with and, and that are struggling with this area. I said, okay, here's what you do. Um, go sell your smartphone and get a dumb phone. Bring the computer to my house and we'll, we'll lock it up. And I want you to take the door off your hinges. Do whatever you can. Take every temptation out of your life. Get a dumb phone, bring me your computer, take the door off your hinges. This is a way that you could fight sin seriously and, and, and stop pornography. Now for that individual, is that a good, right thing for them to do to combat sin? Sure, but here's where this, and how subtle this will start to take place. Um, that works for this individual. So I start saying, hey, to be a Christian, you can't struggle with porn, and to not struggle with porn, you need to give me your computer, you need to sell your phone, take your drawer off your hinge. So the next generation will understand, here's what it means to be a Christian. I've got to follow Christ, plus I can't have a computer, need to sell my phone, take my door off my hinge. And as that start, that trajectory starts to move in, then the younger ones in the room, the ones that don't know scripture that well, the new believers go, oh, okay. So I need to to be like a Christian, I need to, yes, follow Christ, but do this and this and this. So, So it's Jesus in. It always starts subtly. It starts good and right for an individual to fight and combat sin. But when that becomes the rule for everyone, that's when legalism comes in. And that is a temptation that pulls people away from Christ and to rules and regulations. I'll give you another one. Um, people think we're crazy and I think we're crazy. Um, but starting next year, my wife and I have made the decision to homeschool our kids, right? We're that stereotypical pastor with four kids homeschool. We just fall right into the mold of Southern Baptist pastor, right? Um, so that is our decision. And, and we can tell you the, the, how God has lined this up, how we've prayed over this. We've searched for answers. But the root of it is that we understand scripture says that we should raise up our children in the way they should go that if if we only have 18 years with our kids, we feel like for this season, now don't ask me this next year when we kick them all out of the house, right? Um, For this season, we feel like the best decision for our family to raise up children as they should go is to homeschool. But when I start standing up in this pulpit and saying, you must homeschool if you're a Christian, that's where we start getting into this subtle stray of stumbling blocks of temptation. That it's not only Christ, but it's Christ plus homeschool, Christ plus laptop, Christ plus church attendance, Christ plus, And we start adding all of these rules and all of these regulations and all these secondary activities that, please hear me, are good for you. But that is not what is required of us of salvation. Salvation is through Christ alone, through faith alone. That is salvation. Now, as you start to combat sin, as you start to fight sin, yes, there's gonna be things that God is gonna ask you to do. But when that becomes the rule, when that becomes the law, that's legalism that binds people, that binds young converts, it doesn't free them up in Christ. So, and we can, the list just continues. I, I remember I had one, it was just last year, I had a counseling session with one of our college students who said, listen, I, I wanna study the Bible. Like I want to, I want to have quiet times, but I hear everyone around me say, man, I cannot survive a day without having a quiet time. And I just, I just don't feel that way. So I guess I'm not saved. So what's happening is someone saying, man, I am falling in love with the word, but the way that this student is interpreting this is, if I don't love the word like this, then, then I must not be a Christian. So I've got to, I've got to love Jesus with everything I have, but I've got to have a quiet time every single day or else I'm not saved. Now, was that college student wrong for saying that I, my life is different if I don't study the word? No. But the stumbling block, this temptation for us is the same that started in the garden. That we can be like God if we follow these rules, if we do what's required of us, then we do we really need Christ for salvation? That is the crux of what Jesus is teaching here. And here's where it says it. Romans 9, I'll just read this one for you. Romans 9, um, 30 through 32. I'm going to pick it up in verse 31. But that Israel, the Jewish people who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as they were based on works did not pursue it by faith. The purpose of the law is to show us we can't. The purpose of the law is to show us that there's no way we can be at right standing with God. And we see this through Christ that Jesus says, oh, uh, you remember the Old Testament? You were, it said, we're like, don't commit adultery. Well, I tell you, even if you have lustful thoughts in your mind, you've already committed adultery. So Jesus takes all of it up a notch and says, oh, Do you remember the Old Testament said, don't murder? Well, even if you have anger in your heart towards a brother, you've committed murder. The purpose of the law is to show us that we can't, not that if we work hard enough, we can. So the temptation to sin, the stumbling block that we are for young believers is this, Jesus plus this. Jesus plus this worked for me, it must work for you. Jesus plus legalism is the stumbling block that we are. Now, again, obviously, I want to to reiterate, yes and amen, we can have major sin and major fault that will lead to a stumbling block, that 99.9% of the stumbling block is not the major sin. It's the subtle ones throughout the day that we lead people astray with. That's what it means to have a stumbling block. Y'all already have fun? Verse two, if this is you, if you've created a stumbling block, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, there's moments when I'm teaching through scripture where I can just say, there it is, (laughs) right? I don't have to pretty this up. Just so you're clear, a millstone is a massive stone. It's like a huge donut, massive stone that they would use to make flour, and it was so big that it had to be turned by animals that it, took, it would take four to five men just to pick one of these up. So the chance of like, oh, well, yeah, I can, I'll be thrown in the water, but like, I'll come back. Bro, you ain't coming back. The moment they roll this millstone off the boat to drown you, the chances that your neck's going to snap before you hit the water is pretty high. Impending death is coming for us, that it is better if this is your life. And remember, he's talking to the Pharisees, that your life, it's better for you now just to end it than lead anyone else because you're constantly losing your reward in heaven. Jesus is serious about this church, that if we start preaching a message of Jesus plus anything, that we're leading brothers and sisters astray and it's better for us to have a millstone tied around our neck and thrown into the water. Jesus is not, mincing words here. Why? Because the gospel message is all that we have. We don't have anything else. We have Christ crucified. That's it. And if we muddy these waters, then, then all the waters are muddied. Now go back to this phrase real quick because there's, uh, there's a verse that, that might confuse us a little bit. Um, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one who throom, who th- whom they come right? Uh, so flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Stumbling blocks are inevitable. They're going to come, but woe to whom they come. But, but we're going to see this phrase, stumbling blocks, shows up otherwhere in scripture. We need to see this and understand this to make sure that, that we're preaching the correct gospel. 1 Corinthians 1 22 through 23. For Jews demanded signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. A what? Stumbling block to the Jews and follies to the Gentiles. Now wait a second. Jesus said in Luke that if if you are a stumbling block, it's better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the water. But did Paul just say that Jesus Christ was a stumbling block? Is that not some kind of contradictory here within scripture? That if we are a stumbling block, then we deserve death, but Jesus himself is a stumbling block. You don't have to flip there, but, but what is happening here in 1 Corinthians is also talked about in Romans 9. It's also talked about in First Peter 2. And it's quoted, what they're quoting is Isaiah 8. Now here's what it says. And he, Jesus, will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken." So so what's happening here that if we're a stumbling block we're leading people away but Jesus is also a stumbling block see the Jews have been misinterpreting what Christ was going to look like when he came they were expecting this king to ride in on a white horse and overthrow all the government and build a new kingdom here on earth. They had misinterpreted and misunderstood the scriptures and the prophecies about Christ. And so when Jesus came, the Pharisees kept tripping over him going, surely you're not God. Surely I, I see all these things you're doing. But they went so far to say, what you're doing is actually because of Satan, not of God. That you have the spirit of Beelzebub. that you are a demon-possessed man, and that's how you're doing all these things, that they were tripping over him because they thought, no, no, surely you're going to look different than this. And the other thing is they put way too much fact in the law and not enough in Christ. That they thought, I mean, this is more the semi-Pelagian. There's enough goodness in you to save yourself. They were putting all of this effort in the fact that they could do enough good works to get into heaven that they didn't actually need Jesus. And so they kept tripping over him. And so for us, I think that's where our mind naturally, naturally gravitates to is, you're, you're telling me all I have to do to be saved is have faith in Christ? It surely can't be that easy, Pastor. I would feel a whole lot better if you would give me a list of things to do and not do and, and kind of earn my way into the kingdom than just accept this free gift. But that is what the gospel is saying. It's Jesus alone alone. It was a way to heaven. Nothing else. Not good works. Not good deeds. And in a lot of ways, Christ is not who we think He is. He came to serve, not to be served. So, so Matthew. Where's Matthew at? Matthew is our worship leader. He's an elder. And um, I don't know if you know this. I mean, I know. I probably say more offensive things than than most pastors say. Like last week talked about uh, the holes in my jeans. Uh, These are those jeans, so you know. Um, So don't look too close at me. Um, But way back in the day, two, three years ago, when the church first started way back in the day, wow. couple years ago, um, before we had technology to record sermons was probably a really good thing Um, because I was coming out of youth ministry. I was preaching sermons that were probably uh, a little, a little too far, right? So there's one particular sermon that I preached and Matthew came up to me after. I think I'd made a joke about cocaine, uh, which I still think was funny, but he didn't think it was funny. Um, And here's what he said. And this has just stuck with me. If, If Matthew does nothing else for me or for the church, this right here was enough. He said, Gabe, the gospel is offensive enough as it is. You don't have to add offense to it. That the gospel is offensive enough to us. The gospel preaches a message that we are not good enough, that we can't save ourselves, that we are damned to hell apart from Jesus Christ. That message within itself is offensive enough. You don't have to tell these elaborate stories and offend people in the room. Christ is going to offend them enough. So what I'm telling us through scripture is that Jesus as self is a stumbling block to those who don't believe. Church, we can't add anything to that. We can't give any other reason for people to be led astray. The message of Jesus Christ is offensive, that you cannot do it. In the generation of participation trophies and everyone's a winner, the gospel is coming in and saying, no, you're not a winner. Because of your sin, because of your trespasses, you deserve death. For the wages of sin is death. You cannot do this by yourself. But it doesn't end there, right? Praise God that Christ has came for us. That He has come to save us. So pick it back up in verse 3. Pay attention to yourself. Beware of yourself. The greatest enemy to you is you. Jesus keeps going. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If your brother falls into sin, tell him. Tell him. Now, now I just want to be honest. Here's, uh, I can already see a culture shaking up here in the church, and, and here's what it means. Uh, I have conversations every now and then that people will come to me and say, hey, pastor, did you hear about so-and-so? Hey, hey Gabe, did you hear about this situation going on? Um, you should address it. You're the pastor, you should, you should take care of this. There's sin happening in this situation or in this life. You should go address it. It's funny, I don't, if your brother sins, call pastor to rebuke him. Nope. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Church discipline takes place, don't get me wrong, in a membership meeting, we're gonna talk a lot about church discipline. Matthew 18, right? If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he doesn't listen, then bring two to three. If he still doesn't listen, then bring him before the church, bring him before the elders. Hey, church, if we get involved in your sin, it's a big deal. But the thing that we love is this community idea. How much must you hate a brother to not tell him that he's going in a path to destruction? How much must you hate someone to not say, hey man, I see this sin in your life. I can tell you through scripture, this is where it's gonna end up. I love you enough to say, man, you gotta gotta be careful of this. You you need to watch yourself. You need to watch the sin. It's gonna lead to destruction. And this is a hard, awkward conversation to have. But trust me, brother, I'm telling you this because I know where the sin leads and I love you too much to let you go that way. Church, we have to hate sin. We have to loathe sin and the destruction power that it has on us. Christ says to be holy like I am holy. The only way this is possible is through one of us um, calling out sin in another. You know the ironic thing about a blind spot? It's blind, right? So most of the time, most of these conversations I've had to walk into, it kind of ends the same way. Man, thank you so much for telling me this. I never saw that. It was a blind spot for me. I was unwillingly walking into sin because I didn't see that what I was doing was sin. Thank you for telling me. If a brother sins, rebuke him. Galatians 6.1 would speak more to this. Brother, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself lest you be tempted. So if a brother, if you're rebuking, rebuke sounds strong, but Galatians, Paul would say, no, no, do it with a spirit of gentleness. Now, I would say the pendulum goes the other way. If you get so much joy and satisfaction from rebuking sin, you probably need to be rebuked. I don't, I don't think we have any of those here. I think we would have already recognized that. But if you get so excited to call other people on your sin, there's probably an insecurity issue that if you keep pointing out fast enough, no one's going to see your own sin. So if, if you meet a brother or sister that's constantly rebuking, constantly nagging, const- there, there's probably something more going on there. So, you don't do it harshly. You don't do it just to make yourself feel better. You who are spiritual, you who are mature, mature, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. If we see a brother and sister sin, it should break our hearts because we see them leading to destruction. And if he repents, forgive him. Any questions? If you win a brother back after the rebuke, after the gentle restoration, Forgive him. Move on. The model of forgiveness we see in scripture is as far as the east is from the west. That sin is done. Don't be that guy or girl that keeps bringing that up over and over again. Forgive. Let go. Verse 4, and if he, si- if he sins against you seven times in that day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, for some of us, we've already sinned seven times this morning. Amen? Anyone? It was just been that kind of morning, right? Just me up here. Thanks, church, for making me feel like that. All right, Ben's got me. So we understand this sin. We understand that uh, we are forgiven if we repent to Christ. So, so then turned around, we should be forgiving others. Is this a potential stumbling block for the church? Is this why Jesus ties these two unseemingly thoughts together? What is the biggest stumbling block that the Pharisees were dealing with? They created such a subculture for themselves that that they pushed sinners away constantly. You're you're not good enough. Your sins cannot be forgiven. Get out of here. We see the story of um, the Good Samaritan, right? That the religious ones were the ones that didn't offer any help to the guy that might have been dead laying in the ditch, but the Good Samaritan stopped and said, no, 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 I'm, I'm gonna help out. We see this as a portrayal of the gospel. So for us, we cannot be like the Pharisees that receive forgiveness from Christ but never give forgiveness to one another. Is that our greatest stumbling block? Was that the Pharisees and the religious leaders greatest stumbling block? Because what would that do to your psyche if you didn't think forgiveness was actually attainable? What would that do to our soul? If you did not think that forgiveness was actually attainable, that all the sin that you've committed, all that you've done wrong, you you have to pay that. If we didn't think forgiveness was possible, then we have misunderstood the whole portrayal of the gospel. So for the Pharisees walking around, it's these religious guys that had everything figured out and not giving any forgiveness to anyone around them, are they causing a major stumbling block for these new believers that go, man, I can't do this then. I'm going to walk away from the faith because if I have to look like that and there's no forgiveness for me, when I mess up, then I'm just done with the faith. Jesus plus a perfect life is not the gospel. Jesus plus a sinless life is not the gospel. So I, I don't, to be honest, remember a ton of sermons that I, I preached, but I vividly remember the first sermon I've ever preached here. We were actually in that small room, 530 at night, which was awful. If you're ever a part of a church plant, when you leave here and you guys to start, decide to start at night, stop. It's a bad idea. John eight for me is just this story that has ripped my soul. There's There's a woman that was caught in the act of adultery, which is just an awkward way to start any kind of scripture. If you just let your mind resonate on that for a second, but she was caught in the act of adultery. She was pulled out by these religious leaders, thrown at the feet, of Jesus and these men were standing around her she was trembling on the ground in front of Jesus with stones in their hands going Jesus the law of Moses says any woman caught in adultery deserves death Jesus what do you say I mean they were ready to murder this woman for this woman no forgiveness for this woman no, there's no second chance you have sinned your life is done and they are right that's what the law of Moses says so Jesus, the, the wise God that he is, starts doodling in the sand. Brothers, you're not worth my time. Just ignoring, there's a lot of speculation of what happens in that sand. Jesus stands back up and says, all right, whoever hasn't sinned, cast the first stone. If you're perfect, go for it. We see scripturally that the beginning with the oldest, the men start dropping their stones and leaving I mean, can you just imagine the freedom that this woman is feeling every time she "Here's a stone hit the ground? Her life is spared. Her life is saved. All the men leave, and Jesus walks forth. Now, remember what she must be thinking. If this man's a prophet, there's a potential that he's sinless. My life isn't spared yet. That he is the man that can kill me because he has no sin. What does he do? Picks her up right? I mean, just brushes her hair back from her face and says, daughter, where did they go? Where did these men that were trying to kill you go? If they don't condemn you, neither do I. Go and and sin no more. Your life has been saved. You have been forgiven. Now, these Pharisees were quick to not forgive, but Jesus said, no, no, no. Here's the heart of the Father. You're Forgiven. You have been made right. Not because of what you've done, but because of what I've done. Don't forget this. Now, here's what just wrecked me. I mean, that story alone. I mean, I don't know where you, church, don't let this be a stumbling block, but I don't know where you stand on tattoos. But if I could get that depiction of John 8 just as an awesome tattoo sleeve, that's what I want because that is the picture of grace. But that's really expensive, and I'm a pastor, right? But here's what gets me, if I can just be honest. If that happened the next day, would Jesus forgive her? I mean, and we've all had friends, we've all had relationships of like, man, oh, I get it, you messed up, no big deal, whatever. That happened the third day, would Jesus forgive her? Because the world that we live in, the world that the Pharisees live in, would sound something like this: A "Fool me once, y'all know this. Shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me." I don't give third and fourth chances. That's the world that we live in. That's the culture the Pharisees live in. But what if that happened the fourth day and the fifth day and the sixth day? Would there come a point where Jesus would go, all right, you're done. You you keep falling into the sin, you're done. No. No, because that is you and that's me. A sinless life is not attainable, that the message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that Christ took our place. He became our punishment that all of our past sins, all of our present sins, all of our future sins died on the cross that day. That is the beauty of the gospel. So when Jesus is telling us, forgive them seven times, it's because he's forgiven us 770,000 times. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the message that we preach. So for us to get wrapped up in our own sin and say, no, 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 I'm not going to give myself second chances. Therefore, I'm not giving anyone else second chances is Jesus plus, and that is a stumbling block to the world around us. Jesus preached the good news of the gospel that you can't, that you can't be good enough, that you can't pursue good enough. So I'm going to forgive you and you forgive others because that is the best way to preach the message of the gospel, forgiveness through Christ alone. That is it. So when we forgive, we are giving literally the world a second chance like Christ has given us a second chance. Do not be a stumbling block. Jesus, this whole framework of teaching, is is comparing the Pharisees to the disciples. And he's saying, don't be like that. Be like me. So when we take communion every Sunday, here's what we're remembering, all that Christ has done for us. There's nothing, when we take the bread which represents his body, we dip it in the juice, that represents his blood as believers. We're remembering that is it, that there's nothing we have to do to earn salvation, that what Christ did on the cross paid for everything. And that is the message that we preach. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it. So when we preach the good news of the gospel, if we preach Jesus plus anything, we're creating stumbling blocks for the world around us. And we need to be careful. Woe is us if we do that. So let's pray. And Father, as we take communion this morning, would we truly understand what that means? If we're a believer in this room that that see all that you've done for us and all that you've forgiven us from. God, would we teach that same message, that same gospel to the world around us? Would we not be like the Pharisees that try to create this super elect subculture of the extremely well believers and, and keep the pagans away from us, God? But if we understand the true gospel, We understand what it means when we actually take communion. That in your love for us, even when we were sinners, you died for us. There's nothing we could do. There's no way we could earn salvation apart from you alone. That You made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God just by faith in you. God, would we not create any stumbling blocks for those around us preaching a message of Jesus plus anything? The stumbling blocks that we need to be aware of are the stumbling blocks that are in ourselves. Beware of us. Father, with our lives, would we preach a message of Christ alone through faith alone? So Jesus, as we take communion this morning, would we just remember and celebrate all that you've done for us? Would we remember how good of a God you are, how you're constantly forgiving and constantly pursuing and constantly loving? Father, would that create such a freedom in our hearts that is contagious for the world around us? That we would live out a message of grace Father, as we pursue holiness, though, in our own hearts, in our lives, within DNA groups, let us be sensitive to the call that you have for us and how we must combat sin in our own lives, Jesus. But let us not preach that as a message of salvation, but, Father, as a pursuit of sanctification. The church, as we take communion this morning, if you're a believer in this room, let us remember all that Christ has done for us and let us not add anything else to Christ and Christ crucified. That is it. That is the message. Let us celebrate that. It's your name that we pray. Amen.